Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, March 15th. Coming up, nearly 500 people died of drug overdoses in Kansas in 2020, and fentanyl-laced drugs are making the situation worse. Healthcare workers say they're scrambling to save lives. And, and they said, Seth, we need Narcan over here right now. And I was like, oh, crap. Plus, what a new study from the University of Kansas says about the psychology of gun owners. But first, some headlines. Jackson County will receive $13 million as part of a nationwide settlement in a lawsuit against major opioid distributors. KCUR's Salisa Kalakal reports the money will go toward drug treatment and prevention programs. Jackson County Executive Frank White is requesting that the county health department start planning how to use those funds to combat the ongoing opioid crisis. The settlement comes after Jackson County filed a lawsuit against major drug companies like Johnson & Johnson in 2018 over their, quote, deliberate and deceptive marketing of opioids that resulted in high overdoses and fatalities in Jackson County. In February, the companies involved in the lawsuit finalized a $26 billion settlement to be split among states and local governments. Settlement funds will be paid out over 18 years. The first payments will come as early as next month. Starting April 1st, families will be able to visit loved ones in Missouri prisons without COVID-19 health and safety protocols. The Missouri Department of Corrections will allow incarcerated people to have more than two visitors and will drop mask requirements and health screening rules for visitors. Andrea Henderson reports. Joyce Hawkins hasn't seen her daughter since December 2019. Hawkins thought she would still get to see her at the Vandalia Women's Prison during the coronavirus pandemic, but the chartered bus she normally rides to the prison stopped its trips two years ago. Prison officials canceled the bus rides to help keep the virus from spreading to inmates. For Hawkins, the bus was the only way she could visit the prison once a month. That helped her cope with her daughter's 20-year prison sentence. She's closer to Kansas City, and I'm in St. Louis, so I do a lot of worrying. With the restrictions lifted, Hawkins hopes prisoners can see the smiles on their loved ones' faces as they won't be hidden behind a mask. Opioid overdoses are killing more Americans than ever. But if you pick up the phone and report an overdose in Kansas, you could go to jail. Celia Yopis-Jepson of the Kansas News Service reports on what Kansas could do to tackle its opioid epidemic. Seth Dewey works for the Reno County Health Department in Hutchinson, and his job is all about fighting the opioid epidemic. In September of 2020, I received a phone call from someone who uses drugs, and and they said, Seth, we need Narcan over here right now. And I was like, oh, crap. The caller's friend had overdosed. Narcan or naloxone could mean the difference between survival and death. Dewey grabbed his kit, promised to rush over, and told them to call 911. But he was scared to. And so I said, well, listen, then um, I'm going to call 911. So do what you got to do. When I got there, I I ended up having to use uh, three doses of naloxone on this individual and do CPR for four minutes um, while waiting. And uh, it brought back a very slow labored breathing. First people on the scene, law enforcement. They did not have naloxone. 
To Dewey, this story illustrates two things Kansas could do to save lives. First, equip more first responders with naloxone. The police in his area do carry it now, but lots of law enforcement agencies still don't. In February, a federal commission on the opioid epidemic urged Congress to help with the cost so that more first responders have it. Second, Kansas could soon be the last state without a Good Samaritan law for calling 911. Those laws mean you won't get arrested for using drugs when you call an ambulance to save a friend's life. And the U.S. Government Accountability Office says there's evidence that Good Samaritan laws do save lives. But ideas that can be seen as potentially soft on crime aren't popular in the Kansas legislature, even though Kansas police departments and sheriff's offices want this law. More than 90,000 people died of drug overdoses in the U.S. in 2020. It was a record. And the preliminary counts for 2021 look even worse. The nation's opioid epidemic has never been deadlier. Cheryl Jouer has lost not one, but two sons to overdose deaths. The opioid crisis may be far worse than initially thought. The trend is the same in Kansas. A lot of it has to do with opioids, like fentanyl. Just a few grains of it can kill you. Dealers mix it into other drugs to make them more potent and addictive. John Siebert sees this a lot. He's a doctor who treats people for addiction at Valley Hope in Atchison. You have a patient buying a street drug, and, and they think they're buying cocaine, methamphetamine. Or this situation. The commonest way people are buying fentanyl now, if I ask them on admission, hey, what, what brought you to Valley Hope, what's going on? The typical answer is they'll say, well, I'm doing Oxy-30. That is, they thought they were taking 30 milligram pills of oxycodone. Then they come to Valley Hope for treatment, they do a drug screening, and that's when some of them learn they've been taking fentanyl. And that can really scare them. The word causes fear, right? I mean, just it's, it's been the news enough that people realize what a deadly substance it is. Seth Dewey in Reno County says that's why things like Good Samaritan laws and naloxone supplies are so important. Studies show most people do eventually achieve long-term recovery from drug addiction, but that can take years. We're losing too many people due to this old idea that people have to hit rock bottom. People aren't getting a chance to hit rock bottom because they're dying. That's why he also hopes Kansas will pass a law to legalize fentanyl test strips. These are kits that let people check whether there's fentanyl in the drugs they buy. The Federal Commission on the Opioid Epidemic thinks distributing them is the way to go. But in Kansas, they're illegal. The Kansas House passed a bill to change that, but the Senate hasn't held a hearing yet. For the Kansas News Service, I'm Celia Yobis Jepson. The Kansas News Service reports on health, the many factors that influence it, and their connection to public policy. You can read more at ksnewsservice.org. A new study from the University of Kansas explores how racial bias plays a role in feelings about gun regulations. KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to study author and political science professor Don Hader-Markle about how the attitudes of gun owners may not be as rigid as some may think. Here's an excerpt of their conversation from KCUR's Up to Date. Professor, nice to have you. What did you set the test out here? So basically what we started out trying to investigate was the fact that we know that most gun owners own guns for protection. And part of that is a fear of crime. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to investigate is the notion of once somebody owns a gun, how do they respond to threat? And does that response to threat is a condition on who they really think should be able to own guns? 
So what we did was conducted a random sample of American adults. And in that survey, we were able to embed an experiment where about half the sample was um, assigned to a control group and about half the sample was randomly assigned to a condition in which they would be exposed to a dark-skinned man pointing a gun at them. And our expectation was that gun owners would respond differently to this image than non-gun owners, and the control group basically would have no distinct difference. So what we were able to do then is, in a statistical analysis, compare the support for gun regulation amongst gun owners to those who were exposed to the experiment mm -hmm. and those who were in the control condition. So how surprised were you by what, by what you found, Professor? You know, in, in the end, we didn't expect much movement in terms of attitude, even though we know on some specific kinds of gun regulations, such as universal background checks, gun owners are actually more supportive of some of those measures than you might think, and with majorities in support of those even though they're generally strong gun rights supporters. So we expected there was the potential for some movement on this issue. So does this suggest that even gun owners then can shift their positions on these very contentious issues that circle around the whole topic of gun rights? Is that where we are? Yeah, absolutely. And the other part of it, and, and we're not able to fully conclude from our study because we we, we have to design the study slightly differently and the reviewers and editor wouldn't let us claim this. But in the conclusion, we, we state that part of what's going on is that we know that gun owners overwhelmingly are white, older men who are more conservative and might have specific attitudes about who should be able to own guns. Mm -hmm. And the part of the reason we used a dark-skinned man was we know that gun owners tend to score high in racial resentment. So we tended to think that if they were thinking of gun owners as, for example, African-American men, they might be less supportive of broad-based gun rights. And that was, in fact, um, part of what we, we think we uncovered. How significant do you think these findings are? Well, I think it just overall shows you that gun attitudes are not as rigid as some people tend to think and that there's room for movement um, on gun regulation. The basic notion of Second Amendment rights and access to guns, I think, is strong. It's just that the notion that we can't do anything about guns because attitudes are so rigid is just wrong. I'm wondering what the practical implications of this are. I mean, if you are someone who wants to see tougher regulations on guns, you're suggesting that if we threaten all of them with the image of a man holding a gun, <laughs> then maybe we'll see some movement on the issue. But obviously, that's not practical, is it? Right. I'm not going to advocate for threatening anybody. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is, like I say, is that I think if you talk about specific measures such as universal background checks, you'll find more support for those kinds of things rather than just talking about things like gun control or gun rights as overall universal statements. You have to be specific about what you're going after. I'm wondering why you wanted to look at how uh, you know, exposure to threat might influence gun owners' attitudes towards gun regulation because on one level, that's a pretty provocative angle. Right. And as, as I say, part of the investigation was this basic notion of that although gun owners overall support gun rights, when you do things like specifically think about who owns guns and who has guns, their support overall, we know from a vast social science literature, the notion of black gun ownership 
is less supported amongst white gun owners than white gun ownership. Hmm. You know, in this study, you've given some consideration to the actual picture that you showed to your respondents, and you've mentioned it here this morning. Again, this was of a dark-skinned man. This raises questions of how race may have affected the outcome of your study. What, what's your bottom line on that front? Well, the bottom line is, you know, when we look historically at when the first gun regulations came into place, it dates back to the late 1960s. And at that time, what we had in a number of places, including state capitals, we had the Black Panther Party marching with guns. And that perceived threat of Black Panther members led folks like then Governor of Ronald, Ronald Reagan of California to support the passage of gun regulations in the state of California. Are you seeing any uh, move toward compromise, broadly speaking here, Professor, on the issue of gun rights across the country? I mean, on so many levels, it seems like we remain as divided as we've ever been on this front. Yeah, and I think when you couch the the terms of debate in general statements like gun control or gun rights, I don't think you're going to get any movement. I think you have to be really specific about what measures you're looking at and how you think those measures will actually impact gun violence. You know, the RAND Corporation has put out a study where they've looked at all the studies that have been done about reducing gun violence, and they're very clear about what measures potentially would have an impact on reducing gun violence and what measures would not. And that sort of science-based approach to this problem of gun violence really has to be looked at more closely. Hmm. How contentious of an issue is gun control and gun safety in Missouri and Kansas these days, Professor? I see it as a majority support for gun rights. And there's been a basic orientation really since 1999, since the Columbine High School shooting, that if you give an inch on this issue among gun rights activists, that it'll be a slippery slope, that the more you sort of allow for the regulation of guns, the more they'll sort of take on this. So I think there's there's little chance of much movement in terms of gun regulation within Kansas or within Missouri, although Missouri's recent law about law enforcement working with federal agents on right. gun regulation, that, that is very likely to um, go under. You're referring to the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Maybe just a final point. Uh, what, what are you seeing across the country when it comes to gun ownership trends these days. Are more people buying firearms these days? Fewer? What, what's happening? Yeah, basically in 2020 and 2021, with the, the pandemic as well as social unrest related to the George Floyd killing, but then also the election, we saw really a record increase in gun purchasing between those two years. And, it, and that's based on the evidence from FBI background checks, because we don't actually know for sure how many people bought guns. There's no gun registry. But Increasingly, we saw more gun um, purchases and also a greater number of new gun owners. So the diversity of gun owners going forward is going to start to look a little bit different. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske and University of Kansas professor Don Hader-Markle. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Celia's story about fentanyl in Kansas, visit KCUR.org, where you can find more local news stories from Kansas City's NPR station. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Kansas City's new health director on her approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. 